Hello and welcome to Watch It Baptist Church Online. My name's Mike, I'm the pastor at WBC and it's really lovely to have you with us for this session. The thing that we're going to be looking at today is uh, the third in our little series on the prophecy of Ezekiel. And I feel at the very start of this I need to issue just a little warning. The content of uh, the scripture that we're looking at for this passage, in this passage, for this session is... Um, it's got some awkward kind of language in it. It's uh, a little bit explicit, it's a little bit earthy, um, and it's, for those reasons, perhaps a little bit awkward for some of us who are used mainly to passages in the Bible that don't tackle this kind of subject. We're talking about some sexualized language here, uh, and I really don't want us to feel uncomfortable because it, Scripture has something important to tell us, but I also want to make sure that, uh, that you and I are both prepared for what we're going to be looking at in a bit. I'm going to be reading from chapter 16, which is a rather long chapter, so I'm going to be using a kind of edited highlights bit based mostly on an edit that a guy called Anthony Billington has used uh, for a study guide that he wrote. But I would encourage you to go back to the chapter itself You'll some other time when you've got a bit more time and read the whole thing. The impact is really a lot stronger when you read the whole of the passage. I just wanted to make it a little bit more manageable uh, as there are otherwise 63 verses to make our way through. I'm going to pray before we go any further and they're going to read that edited version of Ezekiel 16. So let's pray. Father would you walk with us by your spirit as we look at what you have shared with us through scripture. Would you provide us with that spirit uh, that allows us to deepen our understanding and which also challenges us to think about how this passage uh, applies to us and helps us understand your character. And would you point us towards Jesus as we read it too, that we might walk closely with him as we understand it. Amen. OK, here we go. Um, as I said, it's an edit. And at the end uh, of the way I'm reading it, there will be um, uh, a little line that says which verses I've read from, which have been left out. And the words are going to come up on the screen as I read. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field for on the day you were born, you were despised. Later, I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favours on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. 
You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. You went to him and he possessed your beauty. You also took the fine jewellery I gave you, the jewellery made of my gold and silver, and you made yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put on them, and you offered my oil and incense before them, also the food I provided for you, the flour, olive oil and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant incense before them. That is what happened, declares the Lord. I am filled with fury against you, declares the Sovereign Lord, when you do all these things, acting like a brazen prostitute. When you built your mounds at every street corner and made your lofty shrines in every public square, you were unlike a prostitute because you scorned payment. You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. All prostitutes receive gifts, but you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favours. Because you did not remember the days of your youth, but enraged me with all these things, I will surely bring down on your head what you have done, declares the Sovereign Lord. Did you not add lewdness to all your other detestable practices? This is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will deal with you as you deserve, because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. So I will establish my covenant with you and you will know that I am the Lord. Then when I make atonement for you, for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the Sovereign Lord. I'd encourage you to brace yourself for what we're going to be looking at in this session. Some of this is going to touch raw nerves for some folks. There is talk of unfaithfulness and some of it is described in slightly graphic ways. Some of the verses that I have missed out in the edits I will be referring to or at least there will be places where I refer to maybe different translations of the same things. This is a complex passage, maybe complex is the wrong word, but it certainly um, not an easy one to engage with, partly because of the way it talks about women and partly because of the way it describes maybe how God works. Some of those things are going to be hard for us to get our heads around and we need to remember that part of that is because of where we sit in history compared with where, where history was when this was written. I'm also going to lean quite heavily, as I normally do, but I don't um, on, on scholars and commentators. Now, this is normal for me anyway, uh, but uh, I think it's really important as we wrestle with a passage which is tricky, that we recognise that we're part of a, a wider tradition and a longer conversation uh, between scholars and scripture uh, and readers to understand how this works. And I'd encourage you to be patient um, with me, but also with the Holy Spirit because I believe that the Spirit takes um, a risk in describing things this way for the sake of making the point that needs making. Explicit language is a powerful thing. I'm sure uh, that you are aware, as I am, that the language used in the culture around us has changed quite a bit over the last 30, 40 years. 
I think when I was growing up and there were definitely words that you wouldn't hear on the television that now seem more commonplace. And certainly there were words that you wouldn't hear, particularly on the BBC until after nine o'clock, which perhaps don't have quite that, that boundary that they used to have. Sometimes the use of language is uh, there to really drive home a point or to demonstrate a particular um, passion, determination or, or emotion. I remember um, that in all the years that I worked in offices, um, particularly thinking of the times I worked in uh, for a Windows company and also in PR, I was surrounded by uh, office culture in which the language could often be quite choice. And although folks knew that I was a Christian and I followed Jesus uh, and went to church, um, that only made some difference to how they went about things. It did make a difference. People did modify some of what they said around me, but not always and not everyone. The other thing that really stuck out was that if I ever got frustrated uh, or my language ever betrayed anger or annoyance, that really got people's attention. And on one or two occasions, I will admit, I used language which, because it was around me all the time, was in my head, but which I wouldn't usually choose to use. I'm not gonna tell you which words they were, Suffice to say, I was not proud of myself, and it really got the attention of my colleagues who were going, oh, there you go, Mike swore. And sometimes they'd say, um, you know, I wonder what the church would make of that, or I wonder what God would think of that. So those two or three occasions when that happened really stood out. And I was thinking about that as I was thinking about how Ezekiel is using language here. Not so much necessarily the vocabulary, but certainly the concepts. There's a way in which this kind of presentation really cuts through uh, people's complacency and assumptions. And I can only imagine that's a big part of what God, through Ezekiel, was trying to do here. I said earlier that I'll be leaning on the contribution of some scholars and commentators as we look at this chapter, and particularly leading on a guy called John Goldingay uh, and uh, Phil Moore, Anthony Billington, Leslie Allen and Christopher Wright. Um, there are a couple more. Um, there's this book, which I've used quite a bit, uh, by Ian Duggard. Um, anyway, that, there's, there's plenty of stuff out there and I'll be, I'll be quoting from some of them. In fact, I'll be quoting from Christopher Wright in just a moment. Part of what's difficult about this chapter, chapter 16, and actually chapter 23 in its way as well, is that there are, um, there are passages that seem abusive, particularly uh, of women and of vulnerable women. And it can be tempting for us to feel that what we're getting in this situation is God um, recognising and somehow approving of that kind of abuse. And this is what I mean about the Holy Spirit taking a chance here. I don't think uh, in any way that these abusive and unpleasant um, phraseology and, and, and description represents something that God thinks is okay, but it's a way of trying to get across to his audience how he feels about what they do, how he feels about how his people have behaved. There's a way of challenging attitudes in that. And you might say, well, did Ezekiel need to use 
this kind of language? Did God need to to borrow it? And perhaps perhaps the answer is no, he didn't. But perhaps the answer might be in this way. He really gets the people of Judah in exile to pay attention to what God is seeing and is experiencing of them. I said I was going to quote from Christopher Wright, and I'm going to do that now. His book is from the Bible Speaks Today series, The Message of Ezekiel. And there's a footnote that he um, provides as part of chapter 16. Some modern commentators take great offence at the portrayal of Yahweh in the allegories of Ezekiel 16 and 23. The whole story loads all the wickedness and guilt onto the female character and presents the male, the deity, as faultless. Worse, the male is then portrayed as an abusive husband who subjects his wife to stripping, humiliation and gang rape, allegedly as remedial actions. To this, we need to say first that the imagery of Israel as wife and Yahweh as husband was already well established well before Ezekiel. Secondly, we should remember that the whole portrayal is allegorical and symbolic. There is no suggestion that Yahweh actually behaved like this in a literal sense, or that this story in any way sanctions such behaviour among Israelite husbands. Thirdly, the actions which are described as expressing the anger and judgment of Yahweh were, in their historical fulfilment, actually carried out by Israel's real-life enemies. And the description here is no exaggeration of the horror involved. Fourth, we need to be careful not to import into our criticism of the text agendas which come from a very different context and which are in some ways irrelevant to the point Ezekiel was making, which was certainly not to defend or advocate codes of practice within failing marriages. His point, to repeat, was allegorical and designed to provide a startling theological comment on past and current history. Now, it's a little bit of a complicated argument, perhaps, but, but I think it shows that there is an awareness among commentators that this is complicated and difficult stuff, that we can't assume that God's character has changed because of the way that this um, chapter is written. Neither can we ignore the message that the Spirit is trying to make through the prophet Ezekiel. Before I went any further, I wanted to touch on the complexity of character. The reality that we face is that God has a personality. And because we correctly feel that God is different from humanity, we sometimes, as a result, tend to see his character as somehow less complicated. He is consistent and faithful and therefore um, maybe a little bit uh, maybe a little bit less landscape to his personality. I think actually probably the reverse is true. As we recognise that we're made in the image of God, we also recognise that the complexity of our own character is a reflection of God's. Complexity doesn't have to mean flaws. We don't have to say that because God's character is complicated, it means that there is any wrongness or sinfulness in him. But it is then possible to say, well, if complex character, if real fleshed out character is something that we get because we are made in God's image, then God is complicated too and that's okay. We can allow him to be that way because we recognise that as fulfilled humanity we get complex character from him. 
we are able to say that God is not at all one-dimensional and we wouldn't want him to be. We want him to be complicated enough to be able to love and to be hurt because otherwise the love wouldn't be real and to forgive and to be just enough to allow us to make our own choices and, and kind enough to allow us to direct our own destiny. We get into all kinds of tricky uh, bits of thinking when we don't think about how predestination works. We're not going to get sidetracked by that now, but we do know that we're given free will. And we do know that however much God might know what we're going to do with that free will, it's still for us to choose him or not. I think it's really worth looking at the text again to have a look at this tender and warm and loving God whose complex character is described as we go through this chapter. So from earlier on in chapter 16, God says this. On the day you were born, Jerusalem, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean or rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. Rubbed in salt is a, a cleansing practice. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Later, I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you. Now, this is a reference to a city, but it's also a city that God chooses uh, in Jerusalem in order to be a place where um, his people might live and ultimately where the temple will be built. What he describes is the love and care that he provides for this abandoned child. And we might see that as a kind of a, a way of God talking about what Jerusalem the city was like before um, the people of Israel arrived at it. But there is tenderness there. There's, a, there's an engagement with something weak and vulnerable and that response is tenderness and compassion and and the desire to cover and clean and care for that is what god tells us that he brings and actually that theme of god being good is already well established in the bible and goes on to be repeated by many writers god is good and the fact that some of the verses here are um, hard language doesn't change the character of God. So God is tender and rescuing and redeeming and life-giving. So his instruction to Jerusalem is to live, which has to be the best of blessings from the Almighty. Going straight back into the text, we can see um, from verse 15 but you trusted in your beauty the beauty that God gave the city and its people and used your fame to become a prostitute you lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his you took some of your garments to make high places where you carried on your prostitution you went to him and he possessed your beauty there is a way in which Ezekiel wants to look here at how God's people have responded to being um, chosen and established and set apart and he particularly wants to do that in the context of Jerusalem because of something that we've looked at earlier in this series which is Zion theology so this idea that 
um, that Jerusalem is sacrosanct, that, that God will always protect the city. And God is explaining how the behaviour of the city has become a cause uh, for problems. What I want to do now is quote from uh, this book, um, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, which is by Phil Moore, with my hand in the way there. Um, and I'm going to quote a bit here. And one or two of the references that he makes uh, refer to verses that we haven't included and translations that are slightly different from our own. But I think the impact that he's looking to, for help to help us understand is important. So I'm going to read here. Ezekiel deliberately shocks his listeners in this parable. He wants to rid them of their misguided confidence that God is duty bound to protect Jerusalem because of its long history with him. He reminds them it used to be a Canaanite city, floundering like an unwanted baby left out to die until the moment he chose it as his new capital. Most English Bible translators spare our blushes by toning down the language Ezekiel uses in the Hebrew text. He talks about Jerusalem's nakedness, menstrual blood, breasts, pubic hair and wedding presents and lovemaking. It's a pretty shocking way of describing the early days of God's relationship with Jerusalem. But Ezekiel's listeners need to be shocked out of their fatal complacency. They must grasp that when King David captured Jerusalem and called the nations to come and worship the Lord at his new tabernacle on Mount Zion, it marked the flowering of their city into womanhood. The city that had been rejected by the Canaanites suddenly became the beautiful beaming bride of the living God. The Lord reminds the Jewish exiles in uh, verses 15 to 34 how Jerusalem has responded to his grace towards her. She has consistently repaid his undeserved favour with undeserved betrayal. After the death of King David, Jerusalem prostituted herself to the gods of the Canaanites, the Egyptians, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. She took advantage of the beauty that the Lord had bestowed on her to play the field with the entire array of pagan gods. She murdered his children on the altar of Molech. She forgot her lowly origins and, shocking language in the Hebrew text again, spread her legs to every passerby, thinking more of their large genitals than of her husband's deep love towards her. Even the pagan Philistines were horrified by her behaviour. Prostitutes are normally driven to poverty, degrading themselves unwillingly because they need the money in men's pockets. But in chapter 16, verses 30 to 34, the Lord fumes that Jerusalem does not even have this excuse. Her idols demand everything in return for nothing. Phil Moore, although he uses those old Hebrew translations and, and some direct language, uh, which again might make us feel uncomfortable, does an excellent job of explaining to us why this passage was important, the significance of the message God wanted to get across, and perhaps why it took such a jolt to get people to listen. In lots of ways, this uh, chapter is about covenant. It's about the agreement that God made with his people, that he would be their God and they would be his people. That agreement, that covenant, is really set up in the second half of the book of Exodus, chapters 20 to 33. And the covenant was designed to, to explain how the relationship was supposed to work between God and the people of Israel. Now, God absolutely knows that humanity is busted and broken, that they're going to struggle to be consistent and to be faithful. And so he repeatedly reminds them 
But as we heard earlier in the series, God is able to identify that that these people go through 390 years of rebellion and disobedience and unfaithfulness. And ultimately, if the people are going to behave in this way, God has to respond because there's an agreement between them. There is a promise, a covenant between the people and God. And there's a there's an agreement that is supposed to be honoured. And if it's not honoured, it doesn't just affect one side. You could borrow the language of Spider-Man, perhaps, and say that instead of with great power comes great responsibility, you could say with, with great love comes great responsibility. If somebody loves you that deeply and consistently and with that much compassion and tenderness, there's a responsibility for how we respond to that. God is a God of honour and fairness and justice. He's also, as we touched on earlier, a God who gives us choices and allows us to make them and stick with them. What people need to remember, what humanity needs to remember, is that when we make those choices, those choices come with consequences. So while God is absolutely going to be fair and compassionate and loving, he's also going to allow humanity to live in the hole that it's dug for itself. There's a there's a, a phrase in the text I just want to go back to. Um, and I'm saying I've got to find it. Uh, OK, so we're looking at verse 43. Because you did not remember the days of your youth, but enraged me with all these things, I will surely bring down on your head what you have done, declares the sovereign Lord. It would be easy for us to read that, bring down on your head what you have done, the sense that there's going to be um, that God's rage is the driving force here. I will bring down on your head what you have done. And I think it's worth considering how scholars now read a lot of those passages that talk about how um, the sins of the father will be visited upon the children. You know that, that there will be uh, ongoing punishment for generations. And I think a lot of scholars now read that and say that not so much. It's not so much a threat that God is saying, if you behave like this, then I will make life hard for you. But instead, God is saying, look, this is how it works. If someone behaves badly, then the chances are the generations that follow are going to suffer as well. The impact of your bad behaviour is likely to have knock on effects, ripple effects going on elsewhere. We talked about how uh, having great love, receiving great love comes with great responsibility. But so does the ability to give love if you can and you choose not to, then you are having an impact on the people around you who then miss out on that love that you could offer. So I think as we read that, 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 that <laughs> we read that verse about bringing down on your head, what God is really saying is, if these are the choices that you've consistently made and you want to stick with them, then I'm going to let you live with the consequences of that. If you don't want me to be your God and to leave you to your own devices, that's what I'll do. But see what will happen. And your enemies will overrun you because if you don't want me, I, I don't have to stick around. I wanted to touch again on, a, on another um, scholar's work. This is John Golden Gay's book, An Introduction to the Old Testament. Um, and although this is uh, an explanation that kind of fits the whole of the chapter, I thought I'd stick it in here because it's important that we recognise something of God's character. 
Ezekiel in the chapters 16 and 23 offers five ways that men look at a woman, all of which may be objectionable. The risk the Holy Spirit takes is that Ezekiel may seem to validate these ways of looking at a woman, but there's no evidence that the chapters have actually encouraged abuse of women. Ezekiel takes that risk in the hope that it may jolt his male hearers into seeing something about themselves. And he puts it this way. You know, you know, you look at a woman in a way that suggests contempt. That's the way Yahweh looks at you. I have a lot of respect for scholars who've engaged with this content. I found it sad and a bit heartbreaking. And, and yeah, it, it's kind of not exactly got me down, but it's been hard to engage with this. Because for God to get to the point where this is the way he needs to get his message across, for God to use this kind of imagery and, and allegory suggests something really awful has been going on and that something desperately needs to change. It would be easy to look at this passage, at this chapter, and to allow it to sit in isolation, particularly because perhaps for several of us, we've not looked at it before. That would be understandable, but also really quite particularly unhelpful. I've talked several times, many times, about the importance of context as we read scripture. And that definitely applies in ways to do with the history of the moment in which it's written, the history of the people who are reading it, the circumstances around the, that writing and reading. It also has to do with the literary context, so where has a writer chosen to put a particular part of what they're explaining, perhaps less the case for Ezekiel here than in some other bits of the Bible. So it's not just about historical context, it's about literary context too. But overall there's a bigger context than all of that, and that's the whole of Scripture, sometimes called the Ark of Scripture. There is a whole story of God's engagement with his people told through different kinds of writing at different points in history. And if we treat them all as if they're the same kind of writing written to the same people at the same time, we flatten out something which should have its peaks and troughs. We try and make it monosyllabic or, or monochrome rather than in full technicolour. I was thinking that that to take readings out of context is like allowing yourself to go and, and get some pick and mix sweets and only picking one kind because you already have tried them and you know you like them and you don't really want to risk having anything else in the bag in case it turns out to be a little bit less pleasant or, uh, or you don't feel it's giving you good value. When we take the Bible out of context, that's exactly what we do. That pick and mix thing is what we do. So the, the context that I want to keep us um, thinking about here is the context of a, of a much bigger picture where God makes promises and that God bring a promise keeper keeps those promises. That God starts out in Genesis by saying he longs to share his presence with humanity and that through Jesus he fulfills that promise. We have the advantage of all of this context and we shouldn't ignore it. So while we look at Ezekiel 16 and it presents us with challenges, we also need to look at Ezekiel 16 and say, how does this fit? Where does this belong? How does it contribute to the wider story arc of the Bible? What are the things I need to make sure I don't forget as I read it?
And so I wanted to bring to you the observations of um, Ian Duggard, who I mentioned earlier. I might be saying his name wrong. Um, that's his name, it's spelt down there. And this is the NIV application commentary. And he writes this. We are often concerned to preach with decorum. The presence of Ezekiel 16 in these pages of scripture urges us, at least in some situations, to pull off the kid gloves and present sin in its full ugliness. Fire and brimstone sermons that focus alone on hell and God's wrath may be a serious misinterpretation, misrepresentation of the true God, but so also are a continuous diet of polite, decorous sermons that only mention heaven and love. Sin is ugly, offensive and depraved, and people need to hear that side of the Christian message too. There is ugliness in the cross. How else do you explain the obscenity of the cross? An innocent man, the only truly innocent man who ever lived, is convicted in a rigged trial, abused by his guards until he can scarcely walk, forced to carry his own cross on a back that has been flayed raw. Nails are forced through the living flesh of his hands and feet and he is jerked upright to hang until too tired to lift himself, he suffocates. What God could permit such a death? What loving God could commit his, permit his own son to undergo such agony? The answer is sin. In the cross we see sin revealed in its starkest, most abominable ugliness. If we sweep away for a second the prettification with which we sentimentalise that terrible moment, we see an 18 rated answer to my sin. And it's with that in mind that I think this 18 rated section of Ezekiel, is chapter 16 and chapter 23, if you make your way there as well, serve an important purpose. They are very confrontational and that confrontation is needed. In a parallel with the last session, I do want to finish by looking at the last verses of the text and reminding ourselves what it is that God intends. So reading from verse 59, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my oath by breaking my covenant. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. So I will establish my covenant with you and you will know that I am the Lord. Then when I make atonement for you, for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation. There's a promise there. The same promise that Jeremiah gives when he says, um, when he reminds the, uh, the people that uh, God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. I, I will write uh, my covenant, my promise, my myself into their hearts. Even at this stage, even racked with this complex personality sense of frustration and hurt and anger at sin, still God is saying, I won't forget what I've promised to do. I am still the God who rescued Jerusalem. I am still the God who rescued the people of Israel. I am still the God who will rescue you out of exile. I am the God who will rescue you from your sin, ultimately by sending my own son Jesus to die. For all the complexity, for all the hardness of the language, for all the difficulties that we experience in reading this text, God is still God and is still loving and is still compassionate. And in the middle of all of this, will remember his promise and will redeem his people. And that includes us. Amen.
Okay, as ever, we are asking three questions about what we've been looking at. And the first one is this. What do you think your obligations are to Jesus? I asked the question because it would seem, as we talked about the Spider-Man link earlier, with, with great love comes great responsibility. It would seem that there is an expectation on us. Now, we, we may say, well, we didn't ask for God to bring us into this covenant. And I can understand where you're coming from. But the reality is that we're offered the chance to share the presence of God. And God wants us to be his people and he invites us to be and he's done all the work. And he simply says, look, if you're going to be my people, I want you to live the way I designed you to live. Be the person I designed you to be. Do you feel there are obligations? Do you feel those obligations are fair? Ultimately, what are the obligations of a relationship with Jesus? Question two, what sin do you feel able to be honest about with yourself and with those around you? I'm not asking that you dig deep into the, the darkest depths of your soul and share the things which you promised you'd never tell anybody. But it does us good to practice a level of accountability. So perhaps think back over the last few hours or few days and think, what do I know I got wrong that I can share with someone else to show my willingness to be honest about sin and to ask for help as I respond to it. Question three, can you describe what the grace of God means to you? Perhaps you would find it easier to describe that numerically, like a big number. Perhaps you might find it more helpful to think about all the things that you know you don't do so well and imagine that a graph with all those things on might get this high, but the grace of God goes even higher. It does us good to use our imaginations to try to, to describe and flesh out the grace of God. And that, that grace is his gift, the give, giving of undeserved goodness and favour to us. And one thing that perhaps this chapter does help us recognise is how undeserved God's favour is. So can you creatively, interestingly, find a way of describing how big God's grace is? And then perhaps if you're with others, to find a way of praying thanks for the enormity of that goodness and forgiveness and grace. Thank you for joining me in looking at this chapter. I do hope you'll stick with us. We've got two more parts of this Ezekiel series and they will bring to a conclusion what the prophet is talking about. I recognise that there's a whole load of things that we haven't had the chance to look at and there will be gaps in the book. Feel free to go back round and have a look at it yourself. Uh, but if nothing else, I hope you feel able to join us for the next part and the one after as we look at what else God has to say through his prophet. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence through this time. Would you bless us as we look to apply an understanding of what we've been learning from this session? with the goodness and the grace of Jesus be something that we are newly aware of and carry with us day to day. Amen. God bless and take care.